Throughout the course of human history, there have been so many inventions, so many technological advancements that we could all say, man, this changed everything. From the printing press that spread literacy and literature to all classes of people all over the world, to air travel, the reality that we can be on an airplane, miles in the sky, sitting down in a seat, going so fast to get to another place, right? To scientists discovering and utilizing antibiotics, that helped uh, relieve suffering from billions of people, probably saved millions and millions of lives. There's so many incredible technological advancements that we can say this changed everything. Then we also have those things that we can say, this didn't change the course of human history, but since I have it, um, man, this changes my life. (laughs) Like I can't imagine my life without this thing or this device. You guys know the things I'm talking about? For me, it was all the way back in 2001, which how has that been 20 years ago? But I remember seeing a commercial for this device, and it blew my mind, an iPod. Like, do you remember that? you remember they actually looked like this, right? I mean, the battery life was terrible. It bragged that it held a 1,000 songs, and you're like, that's so many. But I'm telling you, this was a game changer for me because I love music. I'm an avid music fan. I had like a 50-pound binder of CDs that I would carry around with my Walkman. It was really embarrassing, um, but I love that. And CDs, for the Gen Zers in the room, CDs are like really big Spotify's or something like that. I don't know how that works anymore. But I mean, I love the reality that I could have an iPod. And this is before we could even stream music up to the cloud. I don't understand how that works, but it's amazing. But this changed everything for me. Uh, This next uh, technological advancement, man, this is maybe the bougiest thing about me as a person, and you have all the freedom to judge me. Um, I would judge me too, probably. Uh, I didn't actually purchase this for myself. It was a gift a couple Christmases ago, but it changed my life. You guys know what this is? It's an Ember coffee mug. Now hear me, I've loved coffee for a long time, but I have two boys under the age of three, and now I love coffee. (laughs) But it was always a problem because I would always like get up and I'd be playing with them in the morning and I'd set my coffee mug down on a bookshelf or on the TV stand or something. I'd come back to it like 10 seconds later, take a drink, and it was like cold or lukewarm. You're like, I can't have this. Here's where the Ember mug comes in. And if you're wondering, yes, I do get endorsement deals from this. But the, the Ember mug, uh, you can set it on this little heating pad, and then it like pro, you can program to a certain temperature that you want. You take it off the heating pad, and you can put it anywhere. For like 30 minutes, it holds the same temperature, y'all. Like you can get a perfect drink of coffee, a perfect sip, and like 30 minutes later, and you're like, oh, thank you, Jesus. You are so good. All praise be to your name. I mean, it's incredible stuff going on. And if you're still looking for like a last minute gift, um, you should totally do this and just, uh, it's pretty embarrassing how expensive this is, but I use it every day. Anyway, this next uh, technological advancement is something that I didn't have for a long time, then I had it, and man, uh, this has saved me and my family probably thousands and thousands of dollars of auto repairs. Do you guys know what this is? The backup cam, right? I don't know about you, um, but since I've had one of these in my vehicle for the last couple of years, like I trust it blindly. I don't even look over my shoulder at all. Like whatever this screen is telling me, I believe it completely, right? And I've been in like other states where I've rented vehicles before and I have a backup cam, but they just so happen to not have the beeping thing on the back. You guys know what I'm talking about? And I can't deal with that. I need the beeping to tell me I'm getting way, beep, 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 you're getting way too close. I need that or I'm in trouble. But this thing is amazing. I can't believe how much I trust a backup cam. And if you don't have one, make sure your next vehicle, like you don't even need to have four wheels, but you need to have a backup cam. I mean, it's really, really important. And there are those things that you like, can't imagine your life without because it just seems to change everything for you, right? 
And as we're here this evening celebrating on Christmas Eve Eve, we're celebrating the miracle of Christmas. This is what I want us to lean into for the next few minutes. This reality right here, that the arrival of Jesus changed everything. The birth of Jesus changed everything. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help, help us see, help us discover that the arrival of Jesus has changed everything in our world, and the arrival of Jesus can change everything in a human heart. Man, if you hear nothing else tonight, I, just, I want you to know that like, Jesus has changed everything for me, <laughs> and he's changing everything for me. And this isn't fairy tale stuff. Like This is something that is changing my life, a person that is still changing my life, and it's possible for you too. But first, I want to share just for a few minutes about how the arrival of Jesus has changed our world. Now, about six months ago, I came across this, uh, this uh, great Britain historian by the name of Tom Holland. No, not that Tom Holland, not Spider-Man. He's a much bore, more boring Tom Holland. He's actually a, he's a historian who's an atheist. He's not a believer. He doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But he, he was writing uh, this book about the, the values of humanity that he uh, loves and that he admires. And he, he came to this discovery that he thought for the longest time that everything he loved about human society, he thought came from the Greeks and the Romans. But the more he studied, he's like, actually, it didn't come from them at all. It came from this poor Jewish carpenter in first century Palestine named Jesus. He actually wrote this in a book that was recently published called Dominion, How Christianity Shaped the World. And again, he's not a Christian, but this is what he said. This is so powerful. He said, the idea that every human being possessed an equal dignity was not remotely a self-evident truth. A Roman would have laughed at it. To fight against discrimination on the grounds of gender or sexuality, however, was to depend on large numbers of people sharing a common assumption that everyone possessed an inherent worth which Romans would have laughed at that common assumption. That wasn't a common assumption at all. It was laughable. He then says, the origins of this principle that everyone has an inherent worth lay not in the French Revolution, although that was incredible, nor in the Declaration of Independence, which was amazing, nor in the Enlightenment period of history, which was so great, but in the Bible. Tom Holland, an atheist historian, argues that the arrival of Jesus and the people in the first, second, third, and fourth centuries that took Jesus seriously, they changed the course of human history to where things that we take for granted today, man, they were started by Jesus and his first followers. Jesus changed everything. Jesus changed everything when it came to children. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but in the first century when Jesus came onto the scene, children weren't even considered people. Parents had the legal right for up to eight days to even name their child to decide if they wanted to keep a baby. If the baby was born with any deformity or birth defect, it was legal for them to leave them outside and let them die from exposure. And if they were even born the wrong gender, can you imagine what the wrong gender would be? They could leave them outside to die from exposure. It was all legal. Children were less than human in the first century. And then enter Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said things like this about children in the Gospels. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Jesus says, don't get in the way of children. Let them come to me. They actually understand the kingdom of heaven more than the adults do. Let them come to me. This was revolutionary. In another place in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said this about children. If anyone causes one of these little ones, these children, 
those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. This is what we call Tony Soprano, Jesus. <laughs> Don't mess with the kids, Jesus would say, right? I mean, he took this seriously. Jesus elevated children and he declared that they were human and they had the image of God on their lives. And some of his first followers, they took him seriously. <laughs> and they started inside of little gatherings of Jesus followers that we would later call churches, they started orphanages, saying, if you can't take care of your kid, bring him here, we'll take care of them. Christians, Jesus followers, were the first ones to start adoptions to adopt kids who didn't have parents to care for them. They took Jesus seriously. <laughs> and can, can you even imagine a world where we don't love and cherish our children? I'd say that started because Jesus changed everything. Jesus changed everything when it came to education. This is an amazing thing to me, how Jesus changed the way we think about learning and discovery. Uh, you know, it's just amazing, too, because right now there's a lot of people that think that Christians and Jesus people are anti-intellectual, they're anti-science, they're anti-learning anything new, and that's just not what we find in what Jesus started in the first century, uh, Jewish people would say this specific prayer in the morning, at noon, at evening. It was called the Shema. And it said this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus picked up on that prayer. And when he taught it, he added something interesting to it. He said this. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. With your brain, with what you learn, with what you discover, with what you take in Jesus said that education and learning matters. And so it was the first Jesus followers who took him seriously that said, we need to let everybody learn how to read, not dependent on their upbringing or what class they're in. Let's get literacy everywhere. It was in the fourth century where there was this guy named St. Augustine. I'm sure his friends just called him Augustine. But Augustine said this. Augustine said that all truth is God's truth. Isn't that beautiful? And he instructed his followers, all the people that came to his church, his, his parish, to learn and discover from all different disciplines in science and in the humanities and in literature to take it all in because all truth was God's truth. And then it was Jesus followers who started these things called universities and college, ni colleges. 92% of all the universities were started by Jesus followers that thought it was an act of worship for us to learn and to discover. Places like Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard were started by Jesus followers that took what Jesus was saying seriously. Jesus changed the way we think about education. Jesus changed the way that we think about healthcare. This is a radical and beautiful idea, but in the first century, Jesus went around and he was touching people that he had no business touching because it was a common thought that if you touched someone who was sick, then you became sick. If they were impure, then you became impure. Jesus touched them. Jesus healed them. Jesus alleviated suffering everywhere that he went. And so then his followers, they, they took him seriously. <laughs> And then they started to alleviate suffering, and they said, we shouldn't just care about their eternal soul's destination, but we should care about their physical well-being as well. And there was this guy by the name of Benedict who started this place called St. Benedict's Hospital in the fourth century, the very first hospital in the world. Not only that, but in the fourth century, there was, can you believe it, there was a pandemic that swept through most of the world. It was this terrible plague-like flu. We have no idea what that's like, right? And in the fourth century, there was this guy who was a Jewish historian 
Again, he wasn't a Jesus person. He didn't have an agenda. He's a Jewish historian by the name of Eusebius. And just a sidebar, parents, if you're, if you're pregnant looking for a name, Eusebius will not be taken. He'll be the only Eusebius in kindergarten. But Eusebius, he wrote this down about what Jesus people did during this plague, during this pandemic in the fourth century. Oh, this is so beautiful. Eusebius says this, all day long, Christians tended to the dying and to the burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine, and the Christians distributed bread to them all. The Christians' deeds, their actions were on everyone's lips. They were the talk of the town, and the people glorified the God of the Christians. When most people were saying, we just got to get away, Christians, these Jesus people, They ran into the fire. They ran into the storm to alleviate suffering every way that they could. Jesus changed this. Jesus changes everything in this regard. Not only this, but Jesus changes the way we think about equality between different groups of people. Again, Jesus was the one that was demonstrating this reality that you've never made eye contact with another human being who wasn't made in the image and likeness of their heavenly father. And so his followers started to take that seriously. And in the first century, there was this guy named Paul who ends up writing about two-thirds of our New Testament. He plants a bunch of churches, spreading the news and message of Jesus to all over the world where they never heard it before. Paul writes to this place called Galatia. And in chapter 3 of what we have in our Bibles called the, the book of Galatians, he says maybe the most astounding, subversive, radical words that the first century had ever heard that I don't think we've quite figured out in the 21st century. This is what he said that changed everything. He says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Man, I can't even explain how radical and how beautiful and revolutionary this was. You know what Paul's saying here? He says, there's no Jew or, nor Gentile. You know, the, the playing field, it is ground, the ground is level. There's no more ethnic walls to divide you anymore, no racial walls to divide you. There's no, neither slave nor free. You know, this evil institution of slavery, it doesn't play in God's economy. We're not playing by those rules because God's kingdom is better and more beautiful than slavery, so we're tearing down that wall. And then he says, and there is no more male and female, for you are all one. He looked at a system that was patriarchal where men were the ones who had all the power, the influence, they were in charge, and women were just supposed to clean up and cook. And Jesus said, nah, not on my watch. He said, men and women, you are equal. You are co-laborers. You are on the same plane. And men, he also was probably saying, you could learn that they can do about everything better than you can anyway. Just let them have a turn, right? This changed everything. And these are things we just take for granted, but this was revolutionary when it was first said. The arrival of Jesus, you guys, it changed the world. It was a seismic shift in human consciousness. It was an upside-down move that the globe would never, ever be the same. And we just take all these values for granted. But the arrival of Jesus changed everything. But the arrival of Jesus didn't just change the world. It didn't just change all these big systems in our consciousness, how we think about these big values and ethics. It changed human hearts. It changed people in a personal and in a powerful way. You know, after Jesus, uh, he was born at Christmas, then he lived and he died, and then he rose again, and then it rose to the right hand of God the Father. It was like people were rushing to tell his story. Most people in the first century that were wealthy might have had one person write down an ancient biography about them because it cost a lot of money. Jesus, who died penniless, no money, had four different people write ancient biographies about him. 
There was Mark, who got all of his information from Peter, who was a first-century, a first-hand witness to all of Jesus' life. And Mark, he doesn't even tell the Christmas story. He just jumps right into the action of Jesus on the move with the kingdom of God. Then we have Matthew, and we have Luke. Matthew was actually a tax collector, and they were considered the scum of the earth. So it was crazy that Jesus even let Matthew hang out with him. And Matthew saw all these things, and, and Matthew's there, and he gives us a gospel. And then there's Luke, who's a first-century doctor who has these incredible detail-oriented notes, and he's an investigator. And Matthew and Luke, they both give us what we'll just call the Charlie Brown Christmas story. They give us all the play-by-play of everything that happens, Snoopy. Then they give us all the details, right? And then there's the fourth gospel, the fourth uh, ancient biography, and it's, a, it's written by a guy named John who was in Jesus's inner circle, one of Jesus' closest friends, the beloved disciple, sometimes we're told. And John doesn't give us a play-by-play, but John gives us a really unique version of Christmas. He doesn't give us a story. He doesn't give us a narrative. Uh, John, he gives us a poem <laughs> wrapped up in philosophy, <laughs> John doesn't give us prose. John gives us a song that can be sung. Because isn't it true that sometimes things are so beautiful, so glorious, so powerful, that you can't just say, ha, yeah, okay, cool. You've got to sing, because it comes from your soul. (laughs) And this is the story of Christmas that John gives us. And it's not the baby lying in a manger kind of story, but it's so beautiful, it's so powerful, and man, it changes everything. So I want to take us there. Let's look at John's version of the Christmas account, this poem wrapped up in philosophy. We'll start here in the very first, book, uh, very first verse of his gospel. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. This doesn't sound like Charlie Brown, right? What John is saying here at the very beginning, I have it highlighted all over the place. He's calling Jesus, he's equating Jesus with the word. We see this all over the place. Jesus is the word. Now, the Greek word for the word is the word logos. On the count of three, can you guys say logos with me? One, two, three, logos. Oh, that's good hearty Greek for you on a, what is it, Thursday night? I have no idea what night it is. Anyway, Lagos was this, this, this water cooler topic in the first century where philosophers and teachers, they would get together and they would argue, what is the Lagos? The Lagos, the word, was considered by people like Aristotle and Plato and Philo. They were trying to figure out what is behind the universe. What's the glue that holds it all together? What's the creative force that started it? Lagos is like this force, this mixture of justice and creativity and order and all these things like reason wrapped up into one. And they would all argue, where did this force come from? Where did it go? John picks up on the water cooler conversation in the first century about the Logos, and he says, oh, I'll tell you what's holding the universe together. I'll tell you what started, what the creator was like. I'll tell you what it was, and it's not a force. The Logos was a person, and his name was Jesus. So John, in these first couple verses, gives us this cosmic, epic picture of what the Logos is and how Jesus was there at the beginning with God the Father, and he created everything, and he's the one that brings us light, life life-giving life to everything and energizes our world. 
And what John tells us next is staggering. It would have like knocked people out. The first people that would read this or hear this, they would just knock them out. They couldn't wrap their mind about it because he gives us this beautiful picture, the cosmic Christ, the king of the universe, the creator, the sustainer, the restorer. And then he says this, that's the word. And then John says this next, the word became flesh. The logos, the sustainer, the creator, the savior became human became not just human like and like a grown man, but he became a helpless, needy, giggling, dribbling, crying, whining baby boy. This is the miracle of Christmas, you guys, that God chose to lower himself, to limit himself, to humble himself and become human. And not just human, but in the frailest form of our humanity. This idea is so powerful. It's so beautiful. I've always been drawn to it and like blown away by it. But um, since I've become a father, I just have like new eyes to see this miracle that the word became flesh, the word became human. I'll show you this picture. Uh, This is our almost nine-month-old son. This is Thomas Jennings. He's just so beautiful. And this is after bath time, which is the best time. This next picture is uh, baby blue steel. He learned that from Zoolander right there. Um, Looking good. He even poses with his hands. I love this little dude. So fun seeing him grow. But something that's interesting um, to me is like he's in this like, he's really grabby. He wants to grab everything, hold on to everything really tight right now. Like a couple of days ago, I was, I was holding him and I had my Ember coffee mug I was talking about earlier. And he grabbed onto it and we were like in this Mexican standoff for a couple of minutes. Like, don't make any sudden moves. This could be really bad. Trying to fry his fingers off of it. He just loves grabbing things. A lot of times he'll just grab for something, has no sense of his uh, like center of gravity and he'll just like fall. Like most of my parenting when I'm with Thomas right now is just making sure he does not fall and end up in the ER. I'm just grabbing him, holding him all the time because he's so helpless. He's so needy. Jesus limited himself to be needy, to be helpless. The logos, the creator, the sustainer limited himself, lowered himself, humbled himself to be like that. It's amazing. I have an almost three-year-old. Uh, this is Jack Lewis, seen here wearing the coolest Star Wars pajamas I wish I had. And he looks pretty happy um, with the food in front of him because most of the time, it's not like this. Most of the time, whatever we put in front of him, he goes, gross, takes a bite. Gross, takes another bite. I'm like, bro, I don't think you know what that means. But <laughs> Oh, but I love this kid. We have our little morning routine. We come downstairs. I sit him on the couch and I'm like, hey, buddy, what do you want? He goes, I want cocoa milk. Daddy, get cocoa milk, which is chocolate milk. Um, Daddy, get bar, which is not, I'm not taken to a bar. It's a cereal bar, weirdos. But, um, and they're like, Daddy, get Wawa. Daddy, get Wawa. Get water, right? And so he's like so demanding. And then he's like, he's like uh, watch TV, little, tiny TV, tiny TV, big TV. I'm like, just tiny TV. But he like, he's like, tells me what to watch. And he's got all these things that he needs me to do because he can't reach anything. He can't fix anything for himself yet. And that's going to be a great day when he can. But he can't yet. The word became flesh, you guys. The logos became human, became needy, became helpless. I mean, you ever think that Jesus chose to limit himself, to become like you, to become like me? Oh, it's beautiful. It's the miracle of Christmas. It just keeps getting better. Because if you think that changes everything, John finishes the sentence and says this, that the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. I love what Eugene Peterson says in the message paraphrase of this. He says that God became human and he moved into the neighborhood. A static translation of this would say that God became flesh and he tabernacled among us. God came close to us. He lowered himself to come close to us. 
This is so powerful, and this changes everything, because so often we're handed a version of Christianity that I think is counterfeit, that says that God is so holy and so other, and you are so sinful and gross and broken that God can't even get close to you because you're such a hot mess. He doesn't even want to be near you. He can't even look at you. He's kind of wagging his finger in disappointment. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed towards you all the time. But what does Christmas show us? No, that's not, that's not true. God's crazy about you. God's disposition towards you is love. Man, if you hear me say nothing else tonight, I want you to hear this, <laughs> that no matter what your background is, no matter what your current belief system is, no matter what your relationship status looks like, no matter what your employment status looks like, God's face towards you, his countenance towards you is love. You can't do anything to make him love you more, and you can't do anything to make him love you less. He just loves you. And I think it's even more powerful than that. I'll go as far to say I think that God doesn't just love you, but he likes you. The prophet Zephaniah says this in Zephaniah 3.17. He says this, that the Lord delights over you with singing. You ever think about that? That your God, he likes you. He delights in you. He sees you in all your imperfections. He sees you in the things in your life that are not working and they need to be fixed. But he loves you anywhere and he likes you. He came to dwell among us. What a beautiful thing. It changes everything for me and how I see my God and how you can see your God. And you think that changes everything. I mean, it just keeps getting more and more beautiful and more epic. John also says this in his Christmas account. He says that there's a light that comes from the Logos and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And I don't need to spend a lot of time convincing you that there's darkness in our world and in our lives, right? There's those things that are chaotic, that are out of our control, that we can't white knuckle and control, but man, they just chip away at us. And it drives us mad. I mean, sometimes darkness looks like, uh, it looks like a, a pandemic. It looks like COVID. Sometimes it looks like cancer. Sometimes it looks like divorce or a broken relationship. Sometimes it looks like greed and racism. On a personal note, sometimes darkness looks like depression Sometimes it looks like crippling anxiety. Sometimes it looks like isolation. Sometimes it looks like abuse and addiction. We've all got it. We've all got some kind of darkness. But here's the good news. The announcement of Christmas is that whatever darkness that you are carrying, man, it doesn't stand a chance next to the light of Jesus. I love that John says that, that the darkness cannot overcome it. Actually, a static translation of that would not say overcome it. It would say that the darkness is confounded by it. It can't understand it. Oh, isn't that cool? That God's light is so powerful, so subversive, so other, that darkness can't even figure it out. This isn't empty optimism, man. This is the hope of Jesus and ultimately the resurrected Jesus that we'll celebrate a couple months from now at Easter. <laughs> That whatever darkness you're carrying, the light of Jesus is stronger and brighter. Oh, that's good news. Man, I hope you guys receive that tonight. <laughs> the light of Jesus is stronger. This changes everything. And then it just keeps going up a notch. just keeps getting better. John also says this. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, there's a couple words there that are a little Christianese, um, and by that I just mean they sound religious-y. Sometimes we just like scoop over them because it's hard for us to understand. I mean, John is saying here, for those people that receive Jesus, and to receive means to embrace 
It means to like full-heartedly embrace and say yes to Jesus, saying, yes, Jesus, I embrace you. I want you. He continues on and says, to those who believed in his name. You know, in our Western world, when we think about belief, it kind of feels like a Scantron test where you're like, true. Yeah, I, be- yeah, I believe in Jesus. True, true, true. Sin bad, true. You know, you know, God good, true. Like those kind of things. And that's not what belief is all about. Belief in the first century mind is more of a trust it's this word picture of leaning your life up against something and saying, I trust and I have allegiance that this thing is going to work and do the trick. John says to those who embrace, receive, say yes to Jesus, to those who believe, who trust in Jesus, that lean their life up against Jesus, here's where it gets beautiful. He gave the right to become children of God. You guys pick up how beautiful that is? He gives us the right to become his children. This means that whatever origin story that you're writing for yourself from your family of origin, of brokenness, of pain, of shame, and of guilt, Jesus rewrites your origin story and says that you are a part of the most high God's family and you can't change it no matter what you do. And everything that's God's is now yours. I heard this story a couple years back about a young Christian couple who adopted a young boy from an impoverished place in the world. They were so excited to bring this boy into their family and to love him and to care for him and to give him a new start, a fresh start. And things were going well for the first couple nights. And then they noticed that about the third or fourth day that they would go into his room and the room would just smell terrible. There's this terrible smell coming from the room and they're so confused what's going on. So they waited until their adopted son left the room. They looked under his bed. And underneath his bed were like apples and fruits and vegetables and cookies with ants all over it. The, the, the kid had been hoarding this food and just leaving it under his bed. And they were so confounded, so confused by this. So they asked their adoption specialist, hey, what's going on? This is what's happening. What, what's going on? And they're like, oh, yeah, we've seen this before. The adoption specialist said that we see this because this child came from a place where he had food insecurity and he never knew where his next meal was going to come from. This child came from a place where he never knew if the adults in his life were actually going to be there when he woke up. And so he might just be thinking that you're going to disappear too and you're not going to be there and he's going to have to fend for himself once again. So the next morning, the mom and dad go into their son's room and say, hey son, come out here, come into the kitchen. They bring him in front of the pantry. Double wide doors, they open up the pantry, seven shelves high of all the food, snacks, cookies, treats you could possibly imagine. And the dad leans down and says, son, look at this. Everything you see, it's yours. You'll never have to worry about your next meal again because this is mom and dad's and everything that's ours is yours. You know what, buddy? We're going to be here no matter what. You can't stop us from loving you and we're always going to be here when you wake up because you are a son, you are a child. My friends, This is just a small picture of what it means to be a child of God. That everything that is of God's is yours. (laughs) You're an heir to his grace, his mercy, his justice, his kindness, the community of faith, the purpose of partnering with him to put the world back together through his kingdom. It's all yours. He rewrites your origin story. Oh, that's so beautiful. It changes everything. So the question I want us to land with this evening, and as we head into Christmas and into a new year, is this. Who is this Jesus? 
Like, not just like for you and the people you're with, but no, seriously, for you, like for you personally. Who is this Jesus? Can you answer that question? Who is this Jesus that changed the face of human history? Just like created the water that we all swim in socially now? Who is this Christ child who became human in the backwaters of the Roman Empire, but we're singing his praises today in an old bank in Indiana? Who is this Jesus? Who is this Christ child? What child is this that we would still be talking about in 2021 going into 2022? Who is this Jesus to you? Because he is the king of the universe. He's the Lagos. And he's inviting you into his family. And he's inviting you to trust his light in your darkness. And he's inviting you to draw near to him as he draws near to you. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you so much for, I mean, thank you is just not a big enough phrase. We are reminded of your kindness, your goodness, your power, your beauty. And God, we are struck with wide-eyed wonder this evening. God, may we never grow tired or weary or bored with this miracle of Christmas. We're struck with wide-eyed wonder that you would become human as a baby and you would draw near to us. God, we are, we are just blown away by you. God, may we trust you in our darkness. May we be real about the darkness we're facing. And may we trust you and trust that your light will extinguish, will confound the darkness around us. And we can trust you in the process. God, and may we embrace you. May we trust you, have allegiance towards you so that we can be your children, children to an everlasting heavenly father. Jesus, Christmas changes everything because you change everything.